And I was just going to say that there's, there's, a, there's some things that I think I'm okay at in life. I found out yesterday I'm quite good at growing weeds, plural, weeds, plural. But there's one thing I really wish I was good at, and it's the one-liner. You know, just, a, just that short, snappy kind of sentence which just sort of captures a moment or captures a message. And I don't know about you, but often you know, I'll have a discussion and then I'll walk away and then like 10 minutes later, 20 minutes later, oh, that was the thing that I should have said, that one line which would have just sort of captured. I'm not, I'm not all that good at that, but does anyone feel like they're quite good at a one-liner, just, you know, knocking it out? Okay, well, I think actually some of the best one-liners come from films. So what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to put up some of a one-liner on the screen, and basically the first person that I hear call out the rest of the one-liner gets themselves a crunchy, okay, from my magic crunchy box. All right, so pretty easy. You've just got to be fast and loud. And there's only 60 of us, so you've got <laughs> the odds are good. All right, if you know the line, call it out. Okay, here's the first one. I'm even going to help you out by putting a picture of the film up so it's really, really obvious. Okay, this is the first one. They may take our lives. Oh, yeah. All right, down it goes, off the table. It was spoken by Mel Gibson, who was playing William Wallace in the film Braveheart back in 1995. Okay. Actually, maybe I'll give out some bonus points if you don't know the line, but you know the person, the actor's name. Okay? So I'm feeling generous this morning. All right, that was a good one. What's that? Yeah, I'll, I just said that, Mavis, but I'll, <laughs> I'll give it to you because you're in, you're in the hunt. Okay, right, next one is this. Go ahead. Oh, who was that? I think that was Anthony. What's that? It was not Dirty Harry. It was Clint Eastwood, okay, in a movie called Sudden Impact, which I've never seen, but... Um, I thought it was Dirty Harry too, okay, so a lot of misquoting. Right, here's the next one. You've got to be quick. To infinity. Did I hear anyone say that in the front row? Yes, yeah, I thought so. There's a lot of loud yelling from... Did you say, did you say beyond? Yeah, she did. Okay, who says it though? Who, who was the person? Hayley, are you ready? Buzz Lightyear. Okay, yeah, Toy Story, all of them. Okay, cool. Anyway, he said it first in that one. Right, here's the next one. I'm going to tell you an interesting fact about this one in a minute. <coughs> Hasta la... Ooh. Was that you, Stacey? Did you, did you feel like saying that yesterday after uh, Marino shares? You walked off, you're like... Whoa. Okay, so fun fact, if you're into them about movies, Arnold Schwarzenegger there, he was a uh, star of Terminator 2, and based on his payday for acting in the movie and the limited dialogue that he had in the film, because he doesn't say much, he got paid $85,000 to say those four words. Wow. Yeah, that is a good, good day if you're tough like him. Okay, anyway, whatever. Here's the next one, <coughs> super fast. Shaken. 
Oh, now there was a little bit of a hesitation. It's got to be the exact words. I think I heard someone say over here, shaken, not stirred. Okay, there's no but in it, right? But I did hear someone over here point out that it was Sean Connery. Was that you, Pam? I'm just going to chuck it over there and whoever wants to get it can get it. Okay, it's chaos. All right. Now, that was good. Now, there's, I've got two more which technically aren't one-liners because they're two, two short sentences. Okay, but I, I just thought I'd put them in there because they're reasonably funny. Um, and I've got a few crunchies left. Okay, right, anyway, here's the first one. You call that a knife? Yeah, this is a knife. Ooh! Yes, okay. This is a knife, okay? But I'm going to give it to you, Bill, for the whole crocodile Dundee, is that Paul Hogan? Now this, is a, now, this next one, I have to confess, I have not seen this film, okay? I don't even think anybody has ever heard of it, but um, it's just got such a classic line that I think you could use this line in future scenarios. So does anybody know the rest of this line? I'm going to take you to the bank, Senator Trent. No, okay, does anyone recognise that guy? It is Steven Seagal, okay, so this is from some movie in the 90s, and he says this, I'm going to take you to the bank, Senator Trent, to the blood bank. <laughs> now, next time you are in a pretty tense situation, I would suggest that is a great line to use. Okay, but... There are some reasonably humorous one-liners. You know, you can use them or not use them if you want to. But the great thing about a one-liner is it just captures the moment, like just the drama, the emotion, sometimes real wisdom and insight into life. And Jesus was the master of one-liners. So over the last few weeks, if you've been tracking with us uh, in person and then obviously online when we went to that, we've been journeying with Jesus. We've been unpacking what he said and what he did and some of his life, and some of his legacy, and Jesus could just capture a moment with one line. He could um, <clears throat> give some insight, the essence of life. He could convey what, uh, was, what we were supposed to be doing, this eternal message, just in one line. And so let me share with you some of the one-liners that Jesus is most well-known for. Forgive others, and you'll be forgiven. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Now we could spend hours just drilling down into those timeless truths that Jesus said, and he just captures that in one line. We're not going to this morning, but we could, because there's a real depth in that. But Jesus also shared some one-liners that were, that were quite confusing. In fact, some of them just seemed crazy and were really, really hard for his listeners to hear. Let me share some of these with you. Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
Now, some of those are really, really bold claims. And, and what Jesus did by saying that, those one lines, was really disrupting the status quo, just really tipping things on its head and challenging a lot of the traditions of his Jewish listeners. But I think one of the boldest one-liners that Jesus ever shared has actually often overlooked. It's only recorded by one of his biographers, by Matthew, in Matthew chapter 12. And if you've got a Bible, you're welcome to open it or swipe to there or whatever. I'm going to give you a wee bit of context just to kind of set the scene for this. So Jesus is, in in this instance that Matthew records, Jesus being criticized by the religious leaders for the actions of his followers. What you need to know is the religious leaders at the time, they had a whole lot of strict rules and regulations around what people were allowed to do. They imposed these rules and regulations on people, and and most of them were to do with what was known as the Sabbath, the Jewish day of rest. So following God's uh, decrees, following his uh, example in creation and then the Ten Commandments, the Jewish people took one day a week to rest and be refreshed and recharged. But the religious leaders added to that hundreds and hundreds of, of complications, of clarifications, of explanations, basically what the people were allowed to do or not allowed to do. And they were hoping to catch Jesus and his disciples out by breaking one of their self-imposed rules. So in this scene, Jesus pushes back on these false accusations that the religious leaders are making. And he basically says to them, look, you guys, you are so restrictive in your rules. You are so fixated on the Sabbath. You are so obsessed with the letter of the law. You are so concerned about the temple. And then he says this, this one line, there is one here who is greater than the temple. Now, I don't know, this is pure speculation, but I'm guessing there was some pretty big gasps from the crowd when Jesus dropped that line. Because from his listeners' perspective, that is an absolutely ridiculous thing to say. First up, there would be no one in the crowd who would think that they were greater than the temple, not even the religious leaders, and they thought they were pretty good. And and none of Jesus' followers would have thought that they themselves were, were any greater than the temple. So that only leaves one option, Jesus was talking about himself. And to compare yourself to the temple, to declare yourself greater than the temple, is either arrogance or complete ignorance. Because the Jewish temple was a really, really impressive building at the time of Jesus. I know some of you have traveled around New Zealand and overseas. Do you just want to kind of call out the most impressive building that you have ever been inside? Anybody? The what, sorry? The Blue Mosque in Turkey? Okay. Do you know how big it was or anything like that? Uh, Pretty big. big. (laughs) Okay, I'll take word for it. Anything else? Any other buildings that you've been in? Oh yeah? Pretty substantial? And the music of... Cool. Okay. Any others? The Vatican? Yep, okay, that's pretty substantial, isn't it? Pretty big, impressive. Cool. The what, sorry? Oh, the Hagia Sophia, yeah, in uh, Constantinople, yep. 
Cool. Wow, awesome. Okay, so look, you've been in some pretty impressive buildings. What you need to know is that the Jewish temple was one of the most impressive buildings in ancient times. So I'm just going to kind of give you a little bit of historical background because actually in Jesus' time, it was known as the second Jewish temple. So the first Jewish temple was commissioned by Solomon about a thousand years before it was built in the year 957, or completed in the year 957 BC. And Solomon built this temple to honor God and to house the Ark of the Covenants and the Ten Commandments. And so when constructing this temple was happening, the first temple, Solomon just spared no expense. Absolutely the finest of materials. The quality of craftsmanship was second to none. There was the best finishings all poured into this first temple. And for 400 years, the Jewish people viewed this temple as their most sacred place. This was the place that they would go to honor and to serve and respect and to worship God. But then near 586 BC, Palestine was conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian armies. And they absolutely decimated the city of Jerusalem, and they destroyed the temple. The temple was looted. A lot of the Jewish people were forced into exile back in Babylon. If you were with us early in the year, you'll know that we did a series called Unshakable, and we tracked through the story of Daniel. Daniel's time was the time of the exile, when he and a whole bunch of others were shipped off to Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple and, and just absolutely devastated the Jewish people. After 70 years of exile, many of the Jews were allowed to return home. And they began to rebuild the temple, the second temple, but it was the budget version, the economized version. And in fact, according to uh, Ezra, some of the older Jews who had seen the splendor of the first temple and then saw the second temple, they wept because it lacked the splendor of the original. But all that changed in the year 20 BC with this guy, Herod, the ruler of Judea. So he was uh, basically a puppet ruler on behalf of the Romans, and he wanted to make a name for himself, and he wanted to keep the Roman emperor happy. So he promised the Jews that he would enlarge and extend and enhance the temple. But there was a huge challenge to this. The challenge was basically geography. So Mount Moriah was the, uh, the place that was the temple, the second temple was built in following with the original temple. But as you know, if you've been to Israel, it was very barren, a lot of rocky ridges and not many nice flat building platforms. So Mount Moriah had a, a plateau at the top, but then it sloped down a very, very steep slope. So basically here it brought in the best architects that he could, Greeks, Romans, Egyptians, and they essentially did this. They built a box around Mount Moriah. And so this massive perimeter uh, fence, I suppose you could call it, was a whole bunch of stones put as foundation stones, a foundational wall, to then they would infill that with the top of another mountain and a whole lot of supporting arches. And on top of those supporting arches, they would build a platform. And then on top of that platform, that was, the, that was known as the plaza. On top of that, a whole lot of buildings and the temple building itself. Now, this was a massive project and a phenomenal engineering feat. So some of those foundation stones in that, in that box, in that perimeter wall, they, they were all cut from a quarry and transported to site. And some of those stones, most of them weighed like several tons, you know, 10, 20, 30 tons, but some of the foundational stones weighed between three and 400 
tons. Just to kind of put that into perspective, the biggest stones in Stonehenge weigh around 40 tons. So we're talking massive, massive stones, and there is no mortar holding these stones together. They are cut with absolute precision. They are so, so perfectly and finely and accurately aligned that you cannot fit a piece of paper through the gap, because there is no gap. In fact, archaeologists aren't even sure exactly how they transported these stones uh, to the site. So it's very likely there was a lot of trolleys, a lot of oxen, maybe up to a thousand oxen, and just heaps and heaps of manpower on site. There would have been cranes and pulleys. It was just, just a massive, massive undertaking. Phenomenal achievement. And then once that platform was built, it essentially doubled the Temple Mount area. So originally the Temple Mount was around 16 acres. Herod's uh, work doubled it to around 37 acres. So just kind of to put that in perspective, uh, Piney Park is 10 acres. I measured it myself. No, I didn't. I know. Uh, it's 10 acres. I know that. So it's four times the size of Pioneer Park. Four Pioneer Parks put together, or 37 acres is 15 rugby fields, or over 500 tennis courts. It's a really big area to, to establish. And so on that platform, there was a number of buildings, a number of gates, porticos, a whole lot of courts. It was, it was one of the largest construction projects in the first century. Massive. But that wasn't even the temple. That was the platform, the foundation for the temple to be built upon. And Herod promised that the temple would get a facelift. So it was enhanced, it was elevated, it was extended. Uh, it, was, it rose up to 45 feet, which is about four stories high. And all the best stone, cedar wood, marble was used. Some of the columns were made out of just one single length of solid marble. And the best furnishings were put into the temple. Now, I could describe it to you but there is a computer-generated model based on descriptions at the time. So we're going to watch a quick video of that, and then I'll finish it up. All right, pretty impressive building, right? But that video actually missed something, which is quite an important detail. So the exterior of the temple was overlaid with gold and white marble. And so the exterior of the building of the temple reflected the sun. In fact, according to sources, it was so bright that people had to shield their eyes. This is what Josephus, a historian at the time, wrote. He said, The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. Spectacular, right? And the splendor and the magnificence of this temple. I mean, for the Jewish people, the temple was the most sacred building. It had the most sacred objects. It was the most sacred place for them. And so that's why Jesus' claim to be greater than the temple was just so audacious, like it absolutely just puzzled his listeners. But what puzzled, Jesus, uh, puzzled his listeners even more was something that he said a few months later. Jesus and his followers about 12 months later were at the Temple Mount, and this is what we read in Mark chapter 13. As Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of his disciples said, Teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones in the walls. Jesus replied, Yes, Look at these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. 
<laughs> now you can kind of feel the skepticism of Jesus' disciples here. You know, this is probably the moment when they're like, Jesus, you have got to screw loose, okay? That whole thing 12 months ago when you said you were greater than the temple, we overlooked that because that was kind of, you know, exciting times, but look at these temple buildings. They are massive. They're basically indestructible. There's been decades spent building on them and, and fortifying them, and it would be impossible to tear down the temple that Herod has built because the stones are so huge. Like maybe, maybe an earthquake <clears throat> could crack a foundation. Maybe an earthquake could you know, cause a, a tower to topple or some sort of ripple, but it's not going to demolish the whole temple, is it? No. The only force in the world that could do that would be the Roman army. And if the Roman army was demolishing the temple, then clearly something terrible would be happening. It would be apocalyptic. It would be the end of the world as we know it, and we don't feel fine. Little Beatles reference here, if you, you know. Well, 40 years after Jesus' prophecy, this was confirmed. So, in the decades after Jesus, Jewish freedom fighters had been rebelling against the Roman overlords and they were successful in some small scale skirmishes. And the Roman emperor at the time chose to make an example and to crush the rebellion. So he sent in the mites of the Roman Empire. He sent in four legions of the Roman army, over 20,000 soldiers, and they surrounded Jerusalem and besieged the city. Inside the walls, the Jews were suffering under horrible circumstances. There was factional fighting. Three groups were vying for power and control. And on top of that, there was a severe famine and starvation. Thousands and thousands of people were dying because of the lack of food. It was a really, really horrible situation. After five long months, the Romans managed to break through the defenses and they annihilated the city. In fact, the Roman soldiers were so angry at the rebellion that they broke, when they broke through the walls, they just killed anyone and anything that moved. And they went from house to house in this, this vicious slaughter. This, according to one of the sources, the streets were slippery with the amount of blood. And so the Jews kept fighting, but they, they eventually retreated back to the temple as their, as their final stronghold. But eventually the Romans broke through those gates, burnt down the doors, and destroyed the temple. And as punishment for the rebellion, the Romans burned the temple to the ground. And they collected the gold as it melted off the walls and, and all the uh, internal areas, and they systematically dismantled the temple stone by stone. And they pushed the temple stones to the edge of the plaza, to the edge of the building platform, pushed them off the edge into the valley below. So the most sacred building, with the most sacred objects, with the most, and the most sacred place for the Jewish people, was destroyed. And that's why if you go to the Temple Mount today, there is no temple there. There is uh, a Muslim mosque, the Dome of the Rock, built in the year 700, but there is no Jewish temple on the Temple Mount. But if you go to the southwest corner, you will see there are the stones that the Romans pushed off the edge when they destroyed the temple. So it's a pretty phenomenal sight. And 
And I suppose the thing is that the destruction of the temple happened exactly as Jesus predicted. Not one stone was left on top of another. Now, if you are here this morning and you're skeptical about Jesus, if you're just trying to like figure out if he lines up, if he stacks up, then I would encourage you to do some research. Look through history. And the fact that Jesus could predict something so specific and so accurate 40 years in advance, for me anyway, is compelling evidence that he is the Son of God. And maybe that might encourage you to dig a little bit deeper into some of Jesus' one-liners and to see what else he said about life and about truth and the future and to see if that stacks up. But you know, there's something that's happening here that's far more important than Jesus just being proven right in his predictions. And there's actually something more important than just a lovely history lesson. You know, this is where the story intersects with your life. If you are a teenager and anxious about exams coming up, if you're a young adult and you're just kind of questioning your future, if you're a parent and you're worried about your kids, if you're a senior and you're navigating retirement, then what Jesus is doing here has got huge relevance to you. This is where you need to sit up and take notice because Jesus is foreseeing the destruction of the temple, and in doing so, he is making it clear that the temple, the animal sacrifice, all the rituals, all the requirements, all the rules, they are at an end. God is doing something new. And it's going to be bigger, and it's going to be better, and it's going to be bolder, and it's going to be broader than anything anyone has ever seen. Because for centuries, the only possible way to get God's forgiveness and his freedom was to go to the temple. And Jesus said all that pomp, all that ceremony, all those rituals, all those requirements, they're no longer needed. In fact, as the Son of God, Jesus was willing to give up his life so that we might live. In fact, in a parallel to the animal sacrifices that happened at the temple, Jesus took a sacrificial death on the cross. He bore the punishment that the world deserved so that the price could be paid for sin. And to prove that he was the Son of God, to prove that he was who he said he was, he came back to life so that all who believe in him would be forgiven and free. This is how one of the the first Christian uh, writers puts it. He wrote, The blood of Jesus Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal Spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people, so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins. Now, that might be news to you, but I need to tell you that is really, really good news. God promises freedom and fullness to anyone who will trust in Jesus. And I encourage you this morning to choose, if you haven't already, to live a life with Jesus. It is the greatest adventure that you could ever experience. Feel free to talk to me or or someone in our team later. Because, you know, those disciples that were following Jesus, they realized that life with him was an adventure. In fact, they puzzled over much of what he said when they were with him. But after he rose from the grave, it started to make sense. And they actually recognized that the temple was obsolete that the sacred had been transformed. People no longer needed to go to the temple to seek God. God was seeking them. God had chosen to dwell within people if they chose to trust him. 
One of the first Christians was a guy called uh, Paul. He was a, a former temple-loving Pharisee. Then he had a life-changing encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And then he wrote uh, a letter to some new Christians living in the pagan city of Corinth. This is what he wrote to them. He said, your, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. About a year later, he reminded the Corinthians of this inspiring truth. In a second letter, he wrote, We Christians are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their people and they will be my... I will be their God and they will be my people. Sorry. You know what this means? There is no more sacred buildings. There is no more sacred objects. There is no more sacred places. There are only sacred people created in the image of God. And for every person who recognizes that truth, every person who confesses their wrongs and freely chooses to live for him, God promises that his Holy Spirit will will mysteriously work and live within them. All we have to do is acknowledge there is one greater than the temple. And Jesus' invitation is essentially to, to follow me to live the way that I live, to love the way that I live. And if you do that, Jesus says, you will find life as it was meant to be. You won't find God in the temple in Jerusalem. There's no temple. It's not even there. God has left the building. He has come to us in his son, Jesus Christ, and he lives in us through his Holy Spirit. So this week, very simply, I just want to encourage you on your journey with Jesus Uh, that you are aware of his presence with you. I really hope that you are aware that you are sacred. You are special. In fact, you are essentially a a portable temple of far greater worth to God than any building, any object, or any place. God is willing to meet you wherever you are at if you choose to trust him, and he promises to always be with you. So this week, I just want to encourage you, give you comfort and strength, and and empower you with perhaps one of the greatest one-liners that Jesus ever shared. He said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How about we pray together? God, we just want to say thanks for the wisdom and insight of Jesus and just how his one-liners just cut to the core of how we can live our best life. But we're especially grateful for that truth that he is greater than the temple. That the temple's no longer needed to find freedom and fulfillment. We can find that anew. Jesus opened the way for us to connect with you. So I just really want to remember that promise this week that is given to every Christian believer that we are the temple of your Holy Spirit. And you've graciously chosen to live with us as your people to shape us to be like Jesus. And so this week we pray We sing, we acknowledge that we would build our life on the one who was greater than the temple. In your name, amen.